0: Welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm here with Jay Gurdon to talk about imposter syndrome, specifically within the dog world, and more specifically, obviously, within the conservation dog world. I want to give a shout out here to Paul Bunker for introducing the two of us after I mentioned some imposter syndrome feelings in past episodes. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Jay and I talk about some of my personal feelings around imposter syndrome and where that has come from for me, as well is why this might be particularly pre- prevalent within the dog world and even more so than that within the conservation dog world i hope that you find this conversation to be a little bit different and interesting compared to some other uh imposter syndrome podcasts you've heard out there we spend a lot of time talking about personality types and the Dunning-Kruger effect and how those play into imposter syndrome. But before we get into the interview with Jay, I want to go sh- go ahead and share our science highlight for the week. So this week we read the, the article titled You Are Not My Handler, Impact of Changing Handlers on Dogs' Behavior and Detection Performance. This was written by LaToya Jamison, Greg Baxter, and Peter Murray and was published in the journal Animals in 2018. So, The basic premise here is that detection dogs may need to change handlers throughout their career. Because dogs respond differently to people depending on how familiar they are, this change has the potential to create conflict or reduce detection performance. As such, the authors wanted to know, one, do dogs have better detection performance with familiar handlers versus unfamiliar handlers? And two, do dogs show more signs of being stressed or distracted when handled by an unfamiliar person? so for the setup and the study itself they had nine adult dogs which were four border collies four labs and one greyhound that were trained in scent detection for five days a week over a period of three months the dogs also had behavioral assessments using the match up Two shelter dog rehoming program behavioral evaluation which wow i'm really familiar with that Um, we use that on a daily basis at the shelter i used to work for and that um, assessment Assesses the dog's friendliness, fearfulness, excitability, aggressiveness, playfulness, and trainability, although the authors don't discuss the dog's scores, um, which is interesting to have done the things, uh, done the matchup, but not share the scores. Um, Seems like it could be relevant to the overall picture and how the dogs responded. All initial training was done by Handler 1, so the familiar handler, and then before conducting accuracy tests handler two or the unfamiliar handler was given pertinent information on each dog in regards to their personality and handling tips immediately before testing handler two was given instructions on how to handle each dog and had several practice runs with the dogs handlers one and two were physically similar they were both female of similar height and build they also had similar dog handling experience levels accuracy tests were completed outdoors via a lineup that contained target odor Bengal tiger scat non-target odor Cow or brush-tailed Fasigale scat, and if I've mispronounced that, I apologize, I'm not familiar with that Australian animal, and control samples. All dogs were tested with both handlers. Five dogs were tested first with handler one, while four dogs were tested first with handler two. Their positive, negative, and false indications were recorded to determine sensitivity, specificity, positive predict- predictive values, and negative predictive values. Tests were recorded, and dog behavior was la- later analyzed for signs of stress. The dogs had significantly higher negative predictive value and sensitivity scores with handler 1. However, there was no significant difference for dog specificity scores between the handlers. Three of the nine dogs did not work at all for handler 2 all three of those dogs were ones that had been chosen to be tested first with handler two um and our volunteer writes that this point was not addressed in the paper which i find interesting given that none of the dogs that were tested first with handler one failed to perform for handler two so potentially some amount of familiarity with the task helped the dogs uh perform better with the second handler who knows it's also a small sample size so um it's interesting but it is really interesting that three for three of the dogs that didn't work for handler two um had worked first with handler two the dogs were also significantly more distracted and scented less with handler two affecting their overall sensitivity to odor overall the authors conclude that the dog's behavior and accuracy were significantly different between the two handlers but of course that more of research is needed so as our limitations go we do have a relatively small sample size Um, with an n of nine it would be Really great to see something uh, something like this done with quite a few more dogs. Um, and the tests took four days to complete. So the dogs only worked with their unfamiliar handler for a total of four days this is a somewhat unlikely real world scenario in which a dog would only have four days to know a new handler before becoming mission ready i'm also not quite sure exactly how well they knew handler two like is this the sort of thing where they had never met handler two at all before or handler two had been involved in some amount of care or training or at least just cohabitating in some way before um before the training i'm i'm really not sure um, this was a really neat study and gra- adds great insight into factors affecting working dog performance, but as the authors note, more research needs to be done to determine how long it would take for the dog to be comfortable with a new handler, factors affecting that process, and best practices for m- managing a handler transition. Finally, um, we would like to thank our volunteer Heidi Benson for preparing this science highlight. If you're interested in volunteering to help us prepare our science highlights, we would love your help. Reach out to me at Kayla at canineconservationist.org and we'll get you started. Now we're on to the interview with Jay. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jay. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, why don't we start out with just a little bit about your background and what brought you to kind of this, this area of specialization, this line of work? <sighs>
1: I originally started out um, many years ago now on a working sheep farm. So I was breeding and working border collies. Um, Then for various reasons, we left the farm, but the border collies remained. And one particular one who struggled with aspects of life sort of brought me to learning about the training and behaviour side. Learned for a few years and got to the point where I was I started writing a book and that was the point at which the imposter syndrome first showed its head and my way of dealing with things is to go away and learn about them so I went away and did lots and lots of learning about imposter syndrome and then I had all this knowledge that I wasn't quite sure what to do with um and so my mentor suggested to me well why don't you write a book (laughs) so I wrote another book and kind of folded that into a new niche um so basically helping people with imposter syndrome but people in the dog world sort of rather than
0: sort of the general world gotcha yeah so so it all started out because um because you were dealing with yourself and um you're the sort of person who just does uh, Sounds like a, a, a very high level of research when you're trying to deal with something. So why don't we kind of then, as we're as we're getting into this conversation, start with a couple definitions as well. Like what what is imposter syndrome, and what are some of the other terms that we need to be familiar with um, in order to have have a discussion here?
1: Okay, yeah. imposter syndrome although it's got the word syndrome in its name, it's not actually a condition as such. It is defined as a mental phenomenon, which is a pattern of disruptive and potentially destructive destructive thoughts. So it it all centres around this concept of self and of adequacy, inadequacy and fraudulence. It's one of those things that... It's, it's very isolating having imposter syndrome, um, but it is so much more common than people realise. It, it really is. There's a massive proportion of people that you would encounter in everyday life who have imposter syndrome relating to what they do. In terms of other names, it is known by... Um, since it was first discovered in, in the mid-1970s, it's gone through a range of names. It started out as the imposter phenomenon, uh, then it came to imposter syndrome, imposterism... Uh, neuroticism those are sort of the main main names that it's had over the years but imposter syndrome is
0: kind of the one that's been settled on now got it and what is kind of the difference between imposter syndrome and self-doubt um is there is it kind of a, a level a level of difference that makes the cut there or yeah what what is the difference there Self-doubt certainly plays a part
1: in imposter syndrome. Um, self-doubt is generally a slightly more fluid and temporary situation. It's, it's kind of more sort of situational, whereas when you get locked into this loop of imposter syndrome, it's, it's there all the time and it just sort of sits in the back of your mind. There's, there's this aspect of it that's um, called the inner critic that just sort of sits in the back of your mind, feeding all of these negative thoughts through to you and just sort of making, it's like a vicious cycle because Mm -hmm. these thoughts, they they just sort of make you feel worse and worse and worse about yourself. And the more you you go to that side of thinking, the worse you feel. And it it just, it keeps really spiralling and it can actually lead to sort of clinical cases of anxiety
0: and depression. Wow. Yeah. So what what might some of the what are some other symptoms of imposter syndrome? How would I know whether <laughs> whether this is something that I'm really suffering from or um, or maybe I'm I'm experiencing something else or something a little bit less less severe or less typical?
1: It's th- there's not really sort of any diagnosis tools it generally comes down to there's a particular pattern of thoughts that seem to show up more in imposter syndrome than 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 anywhere else and it's all to do with these feelings of fraudulence and inadequacy um sort of things thinking things like if i can do it it must be easy so anyone can do it Um, or obviously this this permanent feeling of fraudulence that those are sort of the, the main thoughts that, that signpost imposter syndrome to most people.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So why don't we now pivot a little bit towards kind of imposter syndrome, specifically in the dog world. What are some of the reasons that it can be so common there? And do we know it's more common within dog folks than the rest of the world, since I, you did say that it's just so common generally? Yeah, I don't know that it is more common in the dog world
1: there are so many factors in the dog world that do play into it though um, because of the lack of regulation and in, in the dog world dog training behavior world there's this there's no sort of real set path to follow there are different routes you can follow with different organizations there's no one real set route So, it can lead to a lot of second-guessing whether the route that you've gone and the courses you've taken are actually the right ones, sort of in inverted commas. And I think another one of the issues is that the dog world does tend to be very passionate. We're all very passionate about what we do, and it can lead to these very strong, massive divides where, you know, sort of we get into the arguments and The two sides of that, or of any argument, you'll quite often have the sort of the educated people who lack confidence and the less educated people with lots of confidence and that clash between the two, that can sort of really leave people reeling and feeling like, you know, maybe I'm just in over my head, maybe this is too much, maybe I can't do this
0: yeah certainly i think those things make sense and i can also see one of the things that's challenging in um in the dog world in particular is how much so much mon- so many of us are solopreneurs so we're not in a situation where we're getting to to learn and grow alongside peers we're not getting feedback from uh bosses or anything and not that that necessarily is going to cure imposter syndrome and in some cases might actively hurt it um but I know it's really challenging, and particularly even within the conservation dog field, to really feel like we're active. We're we're living in a vacuum, um, and you're never training with other people. You're never seeing what they what their work looks like. You never really know what the, you know their grant proposals look like, and whether or not they know what they're doing any more than you do. So it's really easy to kind of fall into this feeling of you know, do I even know what I'm doing here?
1: Yeah. That. The, the working in isolation that's that really is a big thing imposter syndrome by itself does tend to make you feel very isolated so that in a, an industry where we do tend to work alone it, it has such a capacity to sort of grab hold of you and really worm its way into your brain and it can be really really difficult to to sort of get the foothold to start to actually start changing your mental framework to be able to combat it
0: yeah certainly and you know i'm just kind of continuing to think through things again particularly within this conservation dog world um you know even less than the dog training world there's there's nowhere to look to to say like within the dog training world for me it helped a lot once i got my certified dog behavior consultant through the iabc that process took you know years of experience and then months of work just on the application and once i kind of had that it was like okay now at least Two reviewers have decided that I know enough theoretically to do this, um, and you know at least that helped a little bit. And there's just nothing like that in the conservation dog world, and we're such a small industry that I know for me, where my a lot of my imposter syndrome has come from. I mean, there's a couple different places, but one being you know creative and entrepreneurial and trying new things and getting pushback on things, um, and I. I don't think of myself as someone who generally struggles from imposter syndrome, but when I get pushback from people because I'm trying something new or something different, this particularly happened around the launch of our course. Um, that was uh, challenging. And it particularly then that fed into a lot of feelings of who am I? I'm too young to be doing this. I don't have enough experience. Um, but then also looking around and being like, well, nobody else is doing it. <laughs> um, so obviously I decided to do it. But I think it, it parallels your experience with your book where um i think it's really easy when you're trying to do big hard new things to feel like who am i to be doing this um yeah that is such a classic
1: thought that comes into it they who am i i don't know enough you know there are people who know more than i do and again it was my mentor who she sort of sat me down and said there are other people that are writing books on the same subject but none of them are going to have quite the same angle as you do And that was actually kind of what, you know, there is room for everybody's perceptions to come into play.
0: Yeah. And I I think it was, I can't remember exactly where I heard him say this, but I'm quite certain it was Ken Ramirez talking about this at some point. He said something along the lines of, you don't have to be the best dog trainer in the world to take on students or to take on a mentees. You just have to know more. Than the person that you're mentoring, and he was really trying to talk about mentorship and bringing more people into the dog industry, and that's something that's really stuck with me. And um, you know, through like our Patreon and our course and everything, again, like I often feel like we're we're providing something that I'm so proud of and we worked so hard for. But then you also look around at the industry at people who have 20 years of experience. Um, And, you know, you wish that maybe they had been the ones who made the course instead, but they didn't. And I don't have to have 20 years of experience to help someone get their first job. Um, Yeah. And I think those are things that we just, you know, it's one thing to remind yourself of those things and to know those things, and then another thing to kind of feel it all the time.
1: Yeah, having that knowledge there is, is one thing, but actually living it can be a very, very different experience. Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, and then I think, you know, my other big personal hang up that I've dealt with is that I was fired from a job that I really loved and that I thought I was doing a good job at and that I, I had planned to stay at for decades. Um, and I really, again, I feel like I didn't have a lot of self-doubt or a lot of imposter syndrome until that. And then it felt like, well, now I have proof. I have pieces of paper (laughs) that say (laughs) that I was inadequate and I have, you know, I have unemployment checks coming in (laughs) that prove that I must be inadequate. Um, And I think that leads me to, you know, this next thought um, that I think is kind of a self-fulfilling, of course, you're going to think this if you have imposter syndrome, but wasn't I right? Am I I, I, I don't belong, clearly. So is anyone ever right about their imposter syndrome, right about their self-doubt? How would you know when you're actually in over your head or if you're just kind of in your head?
1: That's a really good question. Um, one thing that I recommend to a lot of people to do when they feel like they're struggling and they feel like they don't fit in somewhere is to make objective appraisals. So actually sit yourself down and objectively look at the qualifications that you have and the accreditation processes that you've been through. So these things that you actually have this legitimate proof that you can do. So all the courses you've done, all the things that you've actually gone out uh, and have done successfully, you list all of those. And when you look at them and you sort of compare those to the thoughts that are in your head, if there's something that's in your head that you say you can't do, but it's on that, that, piece of paper that you've written down then that is a fake thought and you've mm-hmm. actually that you've got this concrete proof in front of you that actually no i can do this i do belong i have got it yeah so that's oh, that's something that. that i encourage people to do a lot because it's just and you've then got this thing of you're proving the thoughts wrong and the more you can prove the thoughts wrong the more you take away their power Mm-hmm. and when you start to reduce their power they're not quite as strong in your head and it can take a long time to go through this process, but the Mm -hmm. more you can actually take away this, this impact and influence, the more you can kind of push on through it and just keep on going because you've got this proof to go back to that it's, it's not you, you're fine. It's just the, Mm -hmm. these sort of fake thoughts that are trying to hold you back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. And I know, you know, personally for me, both the wind farm jobs, which I got shortly after losing the job at Working Dogs for Conservation, helped a lot. Although I think I still had a lot of, a lot of self doubt of like, oh, but it's just a wind farm job, and I didn't write the grant, and it's small searches and an easy thing. And, you know, do I really, do I really know what I'm doing here? Still, um, but then this most recent job that we had in Guatemala. Um, was, you know, I was like, no, I I got the client, I wrote the thing, we got out there, I trained the dogs, I did the work, we did everything. Um, And that was really, really helpful for me. So it sounds like a lot of kind of treating imposter syndrome seems to be trying to push through and do the things anyway, and to go for it. Um, And I know one of the things I've told other friends, you know, if they're hesitating to apply to a given job, or try something is, hey, I don't. I don't think you're going to fool someone if you don't deserve to be there. Um, go yeah. ahead and you know write the grant, apply for the job. If they decide that you're the best person for that, you know that's that's their decision. If you want it, at least try. And you know you might get rejected, and then okay, we'll try something else. But I don't know. I,
1: yeah, I think that that also plays into another part of it that is important is. If you have got the grant and you have got this job, isn't the person who employed you qualified to tell whether you're going to be able to do the job or not? So you have this thing: am I right? Should I be here? Well, a good portion of that is on the person who actually hired you because they Mm -hmm. should know what they need for the job. So if you were hired, you must have something that is a good fit.
0: Right, yeah. No, exactly. And I think one of the other um, things that you and I touched on during our, our pre-interview is this phenomenon of the Dunning-Kruger effect and how that can kind of play into imposter syndrome. So do you do you want to try to explain? A, a lot of people have probably seen this chart being passed around on the internet before, um, and we'll include a copy of it in the show notes. But um, can you kind of explain it to us for anyone who isn't super familiar just off just based on the name? Yeah, I mean,
1: The most sort of common perception of it is of like less skilled and able people who overestimate their ability to do a job. But it does actually kind of work the other way in that the people who are highly skilled and knowledgeable, we have a tendency to actually underestimate our performance. Um, I also uh, quite often link it to sort of the, the four stages of competence so you have when you start out first learning you have unconscious incompetence where you don't actually know very much but you don't realize that you don't know very much you start learning you move to conscious incompetence where you know how much you don't know and it's this stage actually that a roadblock comes in for a lot of people because then you start moving to conscious competence where you have learned a lot more and you know how to do things that's where the imposter syndrome often tends to bite because you're still stuck on this thing of thinking you're incompetent. And then when you've been doing the the job for some time and you've done a lot of learning, you get to the unconscious competence. But again, imposter syndrome won't let you realise that. Because it's unconscious, you're not necessarily thinking about it. So the imposter syndrome
0: will tell you that, no, you're still incompetent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And I think it's... (laughs) It's such a funny catch-22. It reminds me a lot of, um, you know, dealing with perfectionism where, and I know I've said this before on the podcast, but for the longest time I didn't think that I was a perfectionist because I believed that perfectionists were people who were perfect but didn't realize they were perfect. And because I was not perfect, I therefore could not have perfectionism. But that, like, didn't fit into its own definition. And I think imposter syndrome has a really similar pattern (laughs) of you know it's so easy to be like well well yeah yeah yeah, i know those things but those were kind of accidents or that was luck and i got i i succeeded here and there but it was because of these things and really really though but like this time i'm in over my head and this time i don't have it under control and this time i'm not actually qualified
1: yeah the 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 perfectionist thing that so often crops up with imposter syndrome um one of the the, sort of the foremost experts on imposter syndrome is a dr valerie young and she actually she came up with these five personality types Mm -hmm. uh, which all sort of fit into a variation of imposter syndrome and actually the first of those one of the most common is the perfectionist so this is actually a a thing that is well known to tie into imposter syndrome uh, you know, these people who set their targets like really, really sort of almost unattainably high, and then inevitably at some point you're not going to be able to meet these targets, and mm-hmm. that then brings with it, you know, you have the, the drop of the self-esteem, leads to questioning, again, whether whether you're in the wrong right job, if you can actually do this. Um, but the weird thing with the perfectionist is failure never actually stops you setting your next target at exactly the same height so it just it carries <laughs> yeah. on it's it's like this this sort of again we're going back to this vicious cycle a lot of stuff in imposter syndrome does work on on like a cycle uh-huh um that they actually it was originally called it was called the imposter cycle going back to the very very first oh, research on imposter syndrome yeah uh, back when it's called the imposter phenomenon, back in the 1970s when it was very first discovered. And, yeah, it, it's very much sort of, you know, you fail at a target, so your self-esteem goes down, you still set your target high, and then it goes down again, and it, it just sort of keeps, it snowballs, basically. It, it just keeps on and on Interesting. and on.
0: Yeah. So what are some of the other um, kind of personality types described by Valerie Young and how do those fit in with with imposter syndrome? Well, the the funny thing is we have these five
1: personality types, but quite often people will identify that they have traits from each of them. So you can actually have you can have one all the way up to five. You know, you might be one of the, the jackpot people who have all of them. Uh, Aside from the perfections, we have the expert who is... I have very, very strong expert tendencies because I tend to go away and research stuff. I need to know as much as I can before I do something. Um, And basically, if you don't know everything about a subject, that's failure. Another one which can be really common in the dog world because going back to that thing of where we so often work alone, the soloist... If they do need any help with a task, that's failure. No, it doesn't matter what how big it wow. is. You know, uh-huh. y- you could be going into such an area that's like thousands of acres. If you needed to have another team of people with you, that's failure. You should be able to go out there and sort it all out yourself. And it it sounds really silly when you put it like that, but the thoughts are so they they dig in so much. It it there's not a lot of logic involved in imposter syndrome. So that's why we use logic to try and sort of reduce it down. We also have the natural genius, those people who just expect to be able to go in and do something first time, you know, sort of without having to put in any effort or learning. And if you can't do that, that's failure. And then the last one is the super being who needs to be able to do everything perfectly, without any effort. And they could be trying to do 10 things at once. And if they fail at one the whole thing's a failure. Yeah, th- yeah. Those, those five types, they sort of
0: make and combinations of those make up the different sort mm-hmm. of cases of imposter syndrome. That makes sense. And I think it's really, it's really helpful to kind of think about where your feelings of failure may come from. And I think, what was the one right before super being the instant expert, instant? Natural genius. So Natural just, genius. Okay. Yeah, yeah, just
1: sort of just being able to pick up whatever and just do it without any effort whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I was when you were explaining perfection, the perfectionist, I was thinking that I feel like there are some people who are labeled perfectionists who maybe are more in this, um, in this other category where because they're so concerned about doing stuff perfectly, they actually only apply or attempt Things that they know they're going to be really successful at, and they ever they never end up pushing themselves, which isn't which isn't what you were describing as perfectionist. But I think sometimes maybe in, in other terminology, we we kind of muddle all those things together.
1: Yeah, I think with imposter syndrome, that's quite often comes under the label of like self handicapping mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. within imposter syndrome, self handicapping is seen quite a lot. It's sort of this cognitive tool of self protection. So if you've got these the sort of little barriers and things that could potentially go wrong, it, it sets you up to have this excuse for if you don't actually manage to do the thing. And so it, it's kind of this sort of self-protection thing, but it does mean that then, as you say, we're not pushing barriers, we're not trying new things. And it can actually really impact on careers because of that, because you're not trying to, to do these new things and you kind of stagnate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I, I remember, I think the first time I ever witnessed this phenomenon, I, I remember it just so vividly. I, I ran cross country in, in middle and high school and there was a, a guy on our team who I won't, won't bother naming just in case. And he was often in the top five or so of most races but if he fell out of the top five or so, he often ended up finishing quite close to last or not finishing the race at all. Um, and I just remember, you know, the first couple times it happened, you know, he was like, oh, my stomach was awful or like he threw up or whatever. And the first couple times you're like, oh, gosh, that's that's so terrible, of course. And then, you know, after you see that happening, uh, you know, one out of five races for multiple seasons in a row, and it's like, oh, he... Has a, some sort of mental block that mm. if he's not going to win, he is not capable of trying.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. a really good example of it in action. The other form of self handicapping that I think a lot of people are prone to is procrastination. So yeah, you've mm. got to do mm-hmm. this thing. You're not sure you can do it, so you put it off until like the very last minute. I mean, I'm sure we all remember doing a homework the night before it was due in,
0: where mm-hmm. you just you, know,
1: you sit and you have to do it. But the thing is. You put it off so long that you've got almost no chance of actually managing to do it successfully. Yeah. So again- Yeah, hand or at least to your, to your
0: best ability. So you yeah. can't say that, you can say, well, this wasn't my best and that's why, that's yeah. why it's not the best.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, interesting, I love that. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scentwork, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationists.org slash shop. So are there kind of specific bits of advice or exercises that people may want to explore if they fall into specific personality types? And I guess even before that, um, is there a good place online to learn more about these types? Is there a good place to take like an online quiz to figure um, figure out where you fall potentially? um yeah there there is an online quiz um on the website of
1: dr pauline rose clance who was one of the original researchers from back in the 70s who who discovered the imposter phenomenon um one of the best things that i can recommend is there is a book which dr valerie young wrote the secret thoughts of successful women um is what her book is called and She she just is like the the go-to person on imposter syndrome. She didn't actually pick the title of that book because we know that it's not just women that get imposter syndrome, men do as well. It does seem to be slightly more women. um, And I question whether that is a societal thing um, where, you know, we, we still... It, it's gradually getting better, but there is still this perception in some places that women should sit over there and be quiet. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I do wonder if that does come into play a little bit still, but yeah, her book, I would definitely recommend her reading that um, because it, it lays out the, the personality type sort of much better than, than I can sort of in a podcast. Um, of course. Okay. But she, <laughs> She does. There are specific tools that we can use for each of those personality types um, to sort of try and uh, regulate the thinking. Um, for mm-hmm. the perfectionist, it's all about accepting that people make mistakes because we all do, we're human, um, and learning to reframe those mistakes as learning opportunities so that when a situation comes up again, we know what we need to do differently. For the super being... Um, It's all about reframing the concept of what success actually means. So taking it away from external validation um, and focusing more on how we feel ourselves about what we do so that concentrating more on feeling in ourselves that we've done our best Um, and, Also remembering that nobody else has the complete power to make you feel good or bad about yourself. So it it is that internal validation that is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. For the natural genius, I I think we see a lot of sort of the the natural genius type in the dog world because there are people, they just sort of expect to pick up a dog lead and have it all fall into place. I think possibly because of the way certainly having a dog, not necessarily working with a dog, but having a, a dog, it is shown as being easy. yeah, they, they just see this perception of you know everyone has dogs, so it's easy, you know training them's easy, house training them's easy, taking them out into the world it's
0: all easy. And the thing is it's not like that. Yeah, like specifically within our industry, I've heard multiple people say that you can't teach this skill. You can't teach anyone how to be a conservation dog handler you either have it or you don't. It's a natural thing. It's a connection with the dog. Like I've heard all of these things from people who have 20 plus years of experience in this field, who are some of the biggest luminaries in this field. So of course, if you are trying to get into this field and you have any amount of hesitation or struggle, and if you've heard these people saying these things and you look up to them the way that I did and still do, I still respect these people, but they're really, really making it hard for anyone to feel like there is room to grow or that if you've ever made a mistake with a dog once in your life, you have the opportunity to still enter this field and that you're still welcome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that is really damaging to p- sort of trying to bring new people into the industry. Yeah. And it does. It's it really makes toxic. it really hard. Um, yeah. I, mean, I Yeah. When I, sort of, when I came into the, the training and behavior side, I felt that I had – Thirty years of being around border collies, you know, sort of, and and working sheepdogs, and yet still you sort of come in and you, think, oh, I know, you know I know nothing. There's all these people. It's it looks so easy, and they understand, and they can read, and it yeah, it it really is a big block to bringing new people in. But for dealing with the the sort of the natural genius feelings, again, it comes back to this thing of everyone makes mistakes. Nobody knows everything. And these people who have 20 years of experience and who say that, you know, you can't learn how to do it, they actually learned how to do it 20 years ago. So, you know, they actually had to learn. They might have forgotten, but Mm -hmm. there was still this learning process that they went through. And also that there will be things that come to you easily. There will be things that don't. And the fact that some of these things don't come to you easily don't mean you're no good at what you do. It's just that that's something you might have to work slightly more on. Yeah. And yeah. Th- the thing is, really, we're all learning the whole time. Yeah, you know, Science never stops evolving and we mm-hmm. never stop learning. So, you know, 20 years down the line, I'll still be learning.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think there is some I, I, I think there is a kernel of truth in that some people do seem to have a natural connection with animals and do Mm -hmm. seem to naturally be able to handle and read dogs horses whatever well um i've been actually watching this with my friend tony with my cat like she's someone who just out out of all the people that have watched interact with my cat she gets him she does a really good job with him he never he's never once bitten her or clawed her because she knows when to take her hand away and she knows where to pet him. And, and you know, And she, nobody taught her that. She gets it. And I think, like, that can be true. But lacking that doesn't mean that you don't bring anything to the field. And I think it also really undermines and makes this field more narrow than it actually is. Because this field is not just about having a connection with a dog. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more to it. And I think you can be awkward or disconnected with a dog but really good at a lot of other things and work on the connection and and get there um you know yeah i think this that that natural expert that natural genius is is very very um pervasive as like a, a, a a like entire cultural belief within the field of conservation dogs. um so that's probably harmful particularly harmful if that's something that you naturally believe for yourself anyway it's certainly very reductionist
1: because, again, mm-hmm. it narrows that, that sort of entryway for people to come in if they believe that you have to have this natural connection and they don't. You know, it, it It's really, really hard for them to then think, well, actually, no, I can make my way into the industry. Um, the soloist, I think the soloist is one that's so difficult in the dog world because we do so often tend to work alone um, because what that needs is for us to realise that we don't have to do everything on our own. Something, again, that I recommend to a lot of people if they are struggling with imposter syndrome is to go and find people and talk about it uh, because you feel like you're the only one, but when you go and start talking to people about it, actually you'll find people go, oh, yeah, I get that. I understand that. I feel like that. And then mm-hmm. you find that you're not on your own and mm-hmm. it, just, it takes some of the sting out of it and actually it takes some of the power out because you realise that actually most other people that you see know exactly these same thoughts. There was a survey done in 2019 where they interviewed people who had all been in their jobs for at least three years and 85% of them experienced these intrusive thoughts of inadequacy and fraudulence. 80% of men, 90% of women that they interviewed. So 85% total. The thing is, wow. of that 85%, only 25% of them had ever actually heard of imposter syndrome. Wow. So that's how pervasive it is and how unknown it is. So you've got so many people who are sitting there thinking, I'm just no good, and in it it's just not true. The last one of the personality types um, is the expert. Again, this, this is the one that I tend to struggle with. Um, and obviously learning is good but it's about making boundaries with the learning so that before doing something new, you don't need to know everything about it. So one, one of the tools that's actually recommended for that is um, what they call learning on a just-in-time basis. So when you're looking to do something new, that's the time to learn about it, but don't let learning about new things stop you doing the things you know about already. Because that can be the danger. You're so focused on learning how to do new things that you're actually not using the skills that you've already got established. So that's something that it can really hold you back in your career. Okay, I feel
0: like I've just said that makes sense about fifteen times in this episode, <laughs> but it does. It's, it's, I'm learning it's, a lot, and I like this it's, breakdown. It's Thank so you. often when I, when I speak to people, uh, you
1: know, I sort of I start talking, and they're just sitting there going, "Yes." Yep. That's me. And yeah, it, it's, it mm-hmm. is so common, just so not
0: known. Yeah. So I think, you know, we've talked a little bit now about what we can do for ourselves, if we can identify, you know, where we think we fall within some of these personality types and different things that may help us. Um, are there any kind of overarching bits of advice that we haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to circle back to?
1: I think the most useful piece of advice that I have, it, it, it goes back to those objective appraisals and mm-hmm. actually looking at what you you have this proof of that you know and you can do because that is just such a concrete thing that when these thoughts start digging you, you can actually go, no, yeah I've done this, I can do this. And another thing that I often recommend to people to do is um, journaling and sort of making a note of the good stuff that happens so you know when things go well good feedback again because you've then got that there that on a day where you are struggling and you're not quite sure you know you you sort of feel ah, i'm not sure i can really do this it's another thing you can go back to and just look at and just and say yes i can do it i have
0: done it there's the proof yeah yeah i love just trying to bring evidence to my brain and forcing it to to listen to me (laughs) Um, which is a funny thing f- for my brain to say about itself, but here we are. Um, so, okay. So we've talked about what we can do for ourselves within our own little brains. What, what can we do as mentors, colleagues, um, coworkers, and even mentees to help kind of celebrate the work, um, and celebrate the worth of our, our coworkers, mentors, and mentees to, you know, I know this is, it's an internal thing. We can't. Raise our way out of this for someone else but there's got to be stuff that we can do to help support each other better the most
1: important thing we can do is talk about it
0: because
1: when you hear especially if it's someone that you respect talking about having these same thoughts it it takes the there's a a quote, I can't for the life of me remember it is, who said it. It's Marie somebody. Shame always shrivels when you share it out loud. So just sort of by coming out and saying it to other people, it reduces the, the scale of the problem for us. Mm-hmm. So, and also it, it cuts out that feeling of isolation and it, it gives... It gives that feeling that there are people that on a day when we're struggling, we can go and talk to and just say, you know, I'm I'm struggling. This this is how I feel. This is what I'm thinking. And just sort of have people who can go, okay, let's talk it through. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of the most useful things that we can do as mentors, just, you know, when talking to colleagues, it's just be open about it try try and remove is it, that isolation because it is that isolation that is
0: such a damaging part of it yeah okay that makes sense is there anything that we can do as far as like feedback or compliments or anything as well that may be that may be helpful i'm just thinking about you know fixed mindsets and praising you know tasks versus people or I don't know some of the, these other like kind of psychological phenomenon that I've you know read various uh, kind of pop psychology books about over the years and wondering if there are any particular strategies that are successful or helpful there.
1: It's a tricky one with imposter syndrome because so much of it comes down to the person's ability to actually internally accept compliments. Um, I think complimenting where where it is deserved is definitely useful. Um because especially if it sort of goes together with some of some of the advice that that there is out there for imposter syndrome because support from peers and compliments from respected peers, they will have a bit more influence. If you know someone you respect mm-hmm. says to you good job. That that kind of goes goes in a bit better. Um I honestly think, again, the the best thing really is to listen and to talk about it. Mm -hmm. That is the the, the biggest support because the person needs to be ready to accept the compliments before complimenting them will actually work, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And that's not really something we can influence. Okay, I think that makes sense to me. There's this part of me that's just like, no, 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 but I want to have better ways to help mentees through this or help... um, I I really wish that that I had these magic words to make it all go away and (laughs) sadly get reasons. Um, Yeah, is there any, um, you know, I don't know. Now I'm just like, well, but what if we said it this way? Like a gratitude instead of compliments. um, Does that have any any impact maybe it depends i don't know you know kind of saying like thank you for showing me that that was really helpful instead of saying good job like is there any kind of like different angle that's more helpful um or just kind of not really phrasing
1: like that actually can be useful because it Mm -hmm. it phrasing it as being helpful rather than just saying oh you you did that really well it kind of it takes the compliment out of it a bit so it takes Mm -hmm. the bit that it's really difficult for the imposter syndrome brain to let in, so yeah, that that actually would be constructive. Okay,
0: well, that's that's good to know, and you know, and maybe even just paying attention to your colleague, to your mentee, and seeing what seems to work well for them and what seems to not necessarily make them uncomfortable. Because I think we've all experienced the, uh, you know, being made uncomfortable by a compliment because we're not ready to hear it. Um, And giving a compliment and then having people just push back and say, oh, no, 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 no. But like, I didn't, I didn't actually do that the way that you're complimenting me for it. Um, See, I'm English with that kind of, I'm English. That's kind of bred into us. We don't do compliments well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, and it's funny. I've been dating an El Salvadorian for now for uh, several months. Um, And it's funny, almost every time I thank him for something, like if I thank him for making me dinner, Uh, he, he just looks at me and he says, you don't have to thank me. (laughs) Um, and it's just such an odd little like cultural, um, like cross, like just misfire that we have like multiple times a day, because I'm just like, but, but I'm grateful for you. And I'm grateful for the fact that you made me this. I know that like, you feel like this is a normal part of our relationship and that, you know, I, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really, really interesting to watch some of those different cultural things interact. Um. Um, And it's almost now become like a silly dance between us, where he says, "You don't have to thank me," and I say, "But I already did." (laughs) You know, just um, whatever. It's yeah, it's so interesting. So, are there any other like resources or other things that you want to make sure that our listeners are aware of or can come back to um, for for further further learning? Um, Because you know, we know that a forty five minute one hour podcast isn't going to fix this for anyone.
1: Um. Yeah, in terms of resources, obviously Valerie Young, Pauline Clance, um, I wrote a book as well. Um, What's your book called? It is called Conquering Confidence, Recognizing and Combating Imposter
0: Syndrome in Dog Professionals. Excellent. We'll get links for all of those in the show notes. I already have uh, Dr. Pauline Clance and Valerie Young all pulled up and we've got Dunning-Kruger in the show notes so we're we're going to have a, a resourceful show notes. Anything else that you wanted to bring up there? I think
1: probably th- my main message to anybody who has, is suffering with imposter syndrome and finding it difficult is to be kind to themselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it's so easy to get locked into sort of beating yourself up because if I was any good, I wouldn't be having these thoughts. Like we said earlier in the show, we tend to be very passionate about what we do. Yeah. We care about what we do. And unfortunately, that caring makes us more suited for what we do, but it also makes us more prone to these sorts of thought patterns. Mm-hmm. So it really is that being kind to yourself that, that will help you get through this.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. And again, there I go saying the same thing again, <laughs> but again, it's just the right thing to say right now. Um, well, Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really hoping that this, you know, people find this um, helpful and uh, that it brings something a little bit different to um, to some conversations about imposter syndrome and a little bit more specific to our industry. Um, and again, we'll have all of those resources in the show notes for anyone. Um, Jay, do you have a website or anywhere where people can go to kind of see all of your work in one place?
1: Um, yeah, the easiest place to find me is www.goodguardianship.com okay uh, or they can also find me on jgarden.com.
0: Jgarden. alright we'll get all of that written up into the show notes to make sure that people can find you easily for everyone at home I hope that you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set you can find all of these show notes with the links that I have been putting in um, donate to canine conservationists join our patreon sign up for our course um, buy mugs or bento boxes all of that over at CanineConservationists.org. until next time